This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation webinar. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, it feels like there has been a lot of fiscal events recently. There's definitely a lot of fiscal action, but it's actually 500 days since we last got something that's actually a budget, since October 2021. That was the dawn of time. And yesterday, Jeremy Hunt got a chance to deliver his first budget as Chancellor, having done quite a lot of other business in the autumn. He got around to setting out his longer-term, more considered future views for the British economy, what he thinks about the future of that, what he thinks the big questions are, and what he thinks some of the answers are. And it was pretty big budget overall. So today's session is to help us dig into what's going on. And there is a lot. So we're going to dig into the long office for long. Shorter than usual. Long office for budget responsibility <laughs> uh, set of forecasts for the economy and the public finances. If that's not enough, we're then going to dig into the long uh, Treasury budget document because nobody in Britain has any self-control left anymore. And if two documents wasn't enough to get you through today, I'm getting there, people. We're then going to take you through the short, erudite, brilliant uh, Resolution Foundation analysis of those two documents, which has been prepared overnight by the Resolution Foundation team, with many thanks to them, digging into what should we make of it all? What should we make of it all against some of the tests the Chancellor himself set? How does he get, does he get employment up? Does he get investment up? Some of the tests that we generally ask about budgets, what's going on with the public finances, how is the economy growing? And then some of the things we particularly focus on, what's happening to household living standards and particularly household living standards of those on low and middle income. So that is the plan for today. It's a tale of three documents, uh, which is why you've got three speakers. So first of all, you're going to hear from James Smith, the research director at the foundation, who I'm again grateful for, for working through the night to make sure you've got a document and a presentation because we're very customer focused here at the Resolution Foundation. We don't charge, but we are market orientated. The, um, uh, then you're going to hear from Harriet Baldwin, who is the chair of the Treasury Select Committee. Uh, hopefully she can also tell us what on earth is happening to global banking markets uh, right now from Switzerland to the west coast of America. And then you're going to hear from Richard Hughes, who is the chair of the Office for Budget Responsibility, who wrote the forecasts and the very long document. The, um, and then we're going to hear from uh, all of you. As always, go on to um, Slido. The hashtag is Budget2023, so everyone should be able to manage that. We'll probably have some poll questions on there as well during the course of the event, but put your questions in there and we'll bring them up. Uh, and a special congratulations to all of you that made it in person, given that there's a lot of strikes going on uh, today. Not that we mentioned that at all over the entire budget yesterday, but you know, who needs to solve long-term public spending traumas in budgets? So that is the plan to kick us off, James. Over to you. All right, thanks, Torsten. So uh, hopefully we still have some people watching this event. I'm not going to give you all 600 pages of all the things Torsten has just waved at you. In fact, what I'm going to try and do here is give you the short version of what's actually going on in this budget. Um, and um, there's great speakers to follow, so I'll, I'll be I'll be quite brief on things. There's more in the document, and uh, I'd like to add my thanks to Torsten's for to the Resolution Foundation team who stayed up. For most of the night, looking a bit bleary-eyed this morning, uh, producing, producing all this. So uh, 
Let me start by returning you to what was sort of six months ago. Feels like a lifetime ago, but if you remember the guy on the left, the mini budget, uh, all that went on at, at that time. I mean, some people might have sort of PTSD at this point. Um, given what happened then, we might have thought Jeremy Hunt was thinking, let's just make this a really boring budget. Let's not just, let's just do more or less nothing. But in the end, that's not what we got. Uh, we got a lot of policy, a lot of very complicated policy, a lot of policy that keeps the likes of me uh, going for years as we, as we sort of comb over it. And um, the, the big thing he was really trying to do, uh, which is very admirable, was really address the long-term growth challenges that the UK economy was facing. So how did he, uh, how did he do on that? In, and in some ways, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the answer. So I'm going to start with the forecast, but I'll be very brief because you do have those hundreds of pages to, uh, to actually look at. And the, the big thing that really was helping Jeremy Hunt here was the big fall in energy prices. So energy prices this year, by which I mean wholesale gas prices are down about half, uh, about 50%. So really big falls there. That means low inflation, smaller terms of trade hit, uh, smaller hit to the overall economy. So the economic outlook is, is fundamentally uh, better than, than we had at the time of the autumn statement. So the economy is expected to be about 1.5% bigger, something like that, by the end of this year, based on the OBR forecast. Uh, but by the end of the, those forecasts, some, some of that news has, uh, has gone away. So the economy is something like half a percent bigger uh, by the end of it. Now, a lot of good news here, um, but we should definitely keep in mind that this is still grim. So we, we don't have a recession in the OBR forecast. That's a, that's a big change. There's a big surprise uh, yesterday when we, when we got the forecast. But, um, you know, we still have a pretty weak outlook here um, and that uh, we're looking at growth over the course of this parliament that's uh, around half a percent the weakest since uh, Margaret Thatcher's first uh, first term uh, as prime minister. So if I move you quickly on to the fiscal forecast you can see basically in these, these sort of complicated red and blue bars. So the red bars basically tell you what's happening in terms of the underlying forecast in the economy and the blue stuff is basically a bunch of uh, policy measures here. You can basically see by these red bars pulling down on, uh, on the deficit here that there was a pretty big windfall here from that stronger economy, stronger tax receipts and that accumulated to something like 150 billion uh, over the five years of the forecast. So a really chunky improvement in the, in the forecast for Jeremy Hunt. Offsetting that in the blue bars uh, towards the top is a, a really big package of policy measures. So Jeremy Hunt was really doing three things yesterday, um, focusing on the cost of living in the near term uh, and putting in place um, a big package of measures both on participation and uh, focused on, on investment. So we could see around two thirds of that, that windfall spent. So pretty big budget here in terms of in terms of policy things as well. Um, so the fiscal position improved, um, but, and there's two buts here. So the first is we shouldn't lose sight of what's been happening 
over the course of the past year or so during the cost of living crisis. And basically, what we've seen is a really marked deterioration in the overall fiscal fiscal position. So compared to a year ago, the, the deficit is something like 50 billion a year, on average higher than, uh, than we expected. And debt has now ratcheted up from the financial crisis through the COVID pandemic and now through the cost of living crisis and is is sort of heading perilously close to that sort of 100% of uh, GDP line. So, uh, so really big, uh, really big deterioration in the public finances, despite the the um, slightly better news this time. The other thing here is and uh, what's going on with the fiscal rules. So it's probably fair to say we're not the biggest fans of uh, the fiscal rules that uh, Jeremy Hunt has, but this, the key thing to know to, that was that despite the improvement in the fiscal position, that headroom has gone down. So um, what this uh, fairly complicated looking chart does is basically show you how um, that improvement in borrowing was actually um, offset, more than offset by some issues with debt in terms of financial transactions, um, some issues with the Bank of England, which given the target excludes the Bank of England, affects what the the government is targeting, and nominal GDP growth is actually uh, a little bit weaker uh, towards the end of the forecast, uh, given the difference between the near-term improvement and the medium-term story. So basically, we we have less headroom. Uh, He has roughly a quarter of the headroom, uh, relative to sort of his three immediate predecessors in terms of their key binding fiscal rules. And um, part of what's going on here is, um, so, so it's not the case that this, this is a particularly tight rule. He would have missed all, he would have missed the key fiscal targets of uh, the, the four previous chancellors as well. So this is a relatively lax rule that's, that um, he's struggling to, struggling to hit. So uh, good news on fiscal policy, but definitely need to keep in mind the, the sort of bigger bigger picture here. Um, so that's the forecast. Let me turn to policy and talk a bit about that. And I want to start with the, the, the perhaps the biggest area where we're we're sort of seeing an impact in terms of what uh, the Chancellor announced yesterday. And really, there was a, a sort of very big uh, radical package to to try and boost um, employment, increase participation in the labour market, uh, addressing some long-term headwinds, but also um, some of the hangover from the, from the pandemic. So um, r- really key area. Um, and there were really three sort of big parts to this. So the first was helping working parents. So the um, number of measures here, but I guess in, in terms of key bit here was the extension of the 33 hours of childcare to working parents um, of children over nine months. Um, and, uh, you know, this is basically the biggest um, change since, um, since all this was introduced back in, uh, back in 2000. The OBR are telling us that um, that will boost employment by something like 60,000. And for, um, uh, for some of the issues that we have focused here on the Resolution Foundation, it was very welcome the Chancellor fo- focused on the UC system and helping people with some of the problems with childcare for those on, on UC as well. So uh, 
big radical changes on, uh, on what's going on with childcare. For those with health conditions, there were a myriad of uh, fairly small things here. What I've picked out is the scrapping of the work capability assessment. So that basically is trying to push in the direction of um, people not being pushed into saying that they can't work in order to access slightly higher benefits here. And um, the um, if that's a sort of carrot in terms of those with health issues, the stick here is bringing uh, getting on for a million people into increased conditionality. So um, big changes here as well. They're going to come in slowly, so uh, we'll see exactly what, what impact they have over time as well. And then the final category is looking at older workers, where there were big changes to the pension tax system. Um, so the re uh, removal altogether of the lifetime allowance, the raising of the annual allowance. Uh, there's, we can get into the weeds of the pension tax system. There's some offsetting effects which sort of dampen how big a uh, impact this is for, for really high income households. But this policy costs something like 1.2 billion. The OBR say that will um, increase employment by roughly 15,000. So it's an incredibly high uh, cost for uh, increasing increasing jobs um, in in that way, but overall we have a, a chunky increase in employment from these policies. So something like uh, one hundred and ten thousand. Just let me show you very quickly what he's trying to address. So this is focusing on um, participation for parents, particularly for mothers, and you can see um, that there's a quite a big difference between the participation rate of single mothers, couple mothers, relative to women without uh, children. So there's definitely the right issue to focus on, and, and we saw some pretty radical moves there. And this chart just shows you what's going on in terms of uh, both the childcare and the pension reforms, uh, roughly how that is being allocated across the distribution. The key point to sort of take away here is with the interaction with the UC system, the 33 hours of childcare basically ends up being a sort of middle to top end boost uh, for, uh, for households with that pension tax changes, red bars being really focused on uh, those with incredibly high pension pots. So if you had a 2 million pension pot, first of all, lucky you, but you've just got a £250,000 tax break yesterday. So that's uh, incredibly good news for, for those uh, small number of people there. So definitely positive uh, policy, really interesting set of issues on the participation side. Um, let me... Uh, talk a bit more about some of the other policy bits, but let me focus on some of the key challenges that the, that the UK has been facing. And I, I'm really going to focus on four things here. So investment, business investment particularly, is the perennial uh, weakness for the UK economy. We've had uh, internationally low levels of investment for years now. The blue line here shows um, the OBR's forecast before uh, the the changes to uh, full expensing that the Chancellor announced yesterday. And the red line shows you stronger, um, stronger growth in the near term, but hitting a brick wall when that temporary full expensing is, is withdrawn. So this is a fundamentally, uh, fundamentally temporary 
uh, change is full expensing for three years. It'll bring forward um, a bunch of investment. But remember, for a lot of small firms, they're already benefiting from a million pounds annual investment allowance. So something like 99% of firms given size you know, are already getting full expensing. So this really affects bigger firms. And this gives you this does give you a powerful boost. I think it, you know um, there would be a lot of people saying this is incredibly powerful policy, but the temporary nature means it's it, it has that limit. So you get the three percent boost to investment, but then uh, that unwinds further out. So um, great to see that uh, made permanent. The government has said that's their ambition, but what we really need here is to make up some of the kind of thirty percent odd gap with the uh, other major advanced economies. So the challenges are, are definitely still there on investment. The challenges are definitely still there on income. So this basically shows you our median income updated forecast based on uh, the OBR numbers yesterday. Uh, we got um, support from extending the energy price guarantee that was expected. Fuel duty also definitely expected but the big picture remains still one of uh, stagnating incomes um, and you can and basically what this chart is showing you is that um, this year and next we get something like a five percent fall um, in overall income so the the backdrop here is still a very difficult one in terms of uh, living standards and incomes and we're now on track for incomes to be lower by the end of the forecast, OBR forecast period than they were in 2019-20. A really prolonged period of uh, stagnation here and the worst parliament uh, on record. Um, a lot be, a lot has been said about taxes over the past six months or so. Um, again, what we learnt yesterday was the OBR was forecasting that we were basically on track to hit a 70-year high of nearly 38% in terms of uh, taxes to, to GDP. So um, incredibly um, big rise, big rise from pre-pandemic to now, something like 5%, roughly equivalent to just over £4,000 uh, per household. So really big rise in taxes. Taxes uh, are, are still going up. But public services are still being cut. So uh, this, this chart just shows what's going on with uh, what we expect on the spending side. We didn't get a lot of change from Jeremy Hunt yesterday on this. We didn't get much movement on some of the big issues around public sector pay. But um, based on what we do know, it looks like unprotected departments are set for something like a 10% fall um, in their day-to-day -day spending. And if the government uh, uh, drives towards this 2.5% defence spending objective, that'd be even larger, something like 14% something like in, in that case. So really big uh, hits to, uh, to unprotected departments. Right, that's my whistle stop of all this. Uh, key takeaways, economic outlook better, but still bad. Fiscal position uh, improved, but uh, much of that's spent. Um, We've got a big package of measures, but um, childcare announcement really is the thing that, that sort of stands out. But the key challenges, and we wouldn't have expected them to be fixed in, in one budget anyway, but um, they're very glaring and big, low investment, stagnant living standards, and issues around taxes rising and public services being squeezed.
That's it from me. Very good, James. Thank you for perking us all up. It's very early in the morning for all that. Right. That was a whistle-stop tour, Harriet. The, um, mm -hmm. You were in the chamber yesterday. Mm -hmm. the, um, what do you think? Well, thank you very much, James. I think uh, you've worked all night to go through all the detail. Um, I had to respond without having, you know, any, <laughs> any information beforehand, but uh, other than there was reported extensively in the press. So thank you, everyone who helped me there. Um, and uh, I think that it's been a week where people have worked all night, uh, including over the weekend yeah. in the city. So perhaps Jeremy Hunt's aspiration for us all to work a bit more is, uh, is coming true. Um, but uh, Torsten, thank Thanks for having me today. Um, you're sort of getting revenge on me, aren't you? Because you're coming in front of our committee uh, next week, and uh, uh, and and I think that uh, you know, as the politician on the panel, I should probably sort of put this in the political context that obviously there's a general election what yeah um and uh and that uh the uh situation as you say is the first budget since october 2021 uh that last uh autumn was designed to stabilize things and stabilize confidence and i think by and large we can say that that's worked and that's shown up in the um, office for budget responsibility numbers so then uh the focus had to move on to these three economic goals that the government uh, has this year. Um, halve inflation, I think we, we all think that that's going to happen pretty automatically, but it is really, really important because inflation is the source of, you know, a lot of the pain that people are feeling at the moment. Um, then secondly, uh, to keep debt uh, low, and I think you hear that a lot, uh, that people are worried about the amount of debt that we took on during uh, the pandemic, and they realise that that's something that has to be paid back over time. We can't just hand that on to our children and grandchildren. And then the third one, which is to have economic growth. And clearly, yesterday's budget was really trying to focus on some of the barriers uh, to growth that uh, people like yourselves have been highlighting uh, for some time. So uh, the two main ones being uh, business investment, and particularly in the context of the fact that uh, the last budget we had voted through this increase in the corporation rate of tax from 19 to 25 for bigger businesses and so uh, trying to address the impact that that might have on this underlying problem that we have in the UK economy of insufficient business investment was clearly behind uh, the way he had approached that so he didn't um, do what I thought might be the rabbit which is to actually do something on the headline rate but he did do a lot on this uh, full expenses or full expensing albeit for uh, for the three years and um, then the other big problem uh, is the fact that as an economy we're not working as many hours um, as we were before the pandemic. And so addressing some of the barriers to, uh, to work and to doing additional hours of work, ranging from hospital consultants, who obviously very important to not send them messages through the tax system that they shouldn't uh, be working longer. And secondly, um, you know, people, particularly uh, parents who, who find at the end of maternity leave that, uh, you know, how challenging it is to pay for childcare up until the time when they get the, the free hours. So really revolutionary, I think, on both of those fronts yesterday, I think, did go for 
further than anyone was expecting going into it and you know potentially will have um, uh, a real effect on those two core problems in the British economy. Now um, there are still quite a lot of issues that our committee will be looking into. We've been highlighting this cliff edge problem. Uh, clearly some of the measures yesterday uh, address some of the cliff edges in the benefit system and in the tax system that act as a deterrent to you uh, taking on additional hours of work. And I do think it's incredibly important that we try and smooth all these things as much as possible so that every additional hour of work that you do is additionally rewarded. And so we'll do quite a bit of work, I think, on cliff edges this year, working with our colleagues on the Work and Pensions uh, Committee. The second thing that I think still remains and perhaps even has got uh, bigger uh, is this issue of uh, what we call fuel duty fiction. Uh, it's um, something the OBR highlighted in, uh, in the report, but I think now can also be extended to business investment allowance fiction, because I honestly don't think that any of us think that just before a general election next year, the Chancellor is going to let uh, fuel duties rise as is predicted in the OBR's uh, financial uh, outlook. And so uh, I think he's kicked the 5p and the escalator down the road for another year. Um, I think he will make the same decision next year, but just before an election. And I think the same thing will probably now apply to this three-year uh, investment limit. So um, it's a question of now, I think, the fiscal rules driving some of the decisions and the projections that go into the budget. And, uh, you know, I think that makes the future finances it look better. But it, in our opinion on the committee, the, particularly with fuel duty, we really need to get to a better place, which is to be realistic about where fuel duty is going and also have a sort of long term strategic plan for the fact that, in fact, most of us are not going to be driving petrol and diesel cars after 2030. So there you are. Great. Thank you yeah. very much, Harriet. There's lots of food for thought there. A nice balanced uh, tour across the horizon. Richard, explain why you've written such a long set of forecasts uh, uh, and what was in them. Uh, so on the, on the length of the document, I should say, we did a survey of our readers and... Um, <laughs> they all and, wanted and, more. And, 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 and in, in particular... <laughs> and they all went to sleep during the survey. In particular, parliamentarians and think tanks wanted a longer report compared to the average readership. So I, did it was, not, it was, I did not fill in the it survey. Was, it, was journalists, <laughs> it was journalists who wanted a shorter report. Um, uh, and with the journalists. Um, but anyway, this was shorter than average, but a bit longer than our last one. Okay. Um, Onto the substance. So on, on the substance, uh, James has already talked uh, uh, very well and very clearly and ha on, the, on how the forecast looks and Harriet on the policy package. So maybe what I can just add is, is basically how we, why things changed in November, um, what changed in the underlying forecast and why, and then how did we look at the policy package when we built that into our economic and fiscal forecasts. And in terms of why do we think that the economic outlook is somewhat brighter in the near term compared to November, it's really three things which have been driving a lot of people's forecasts over the last year, which is energy prices, inflation and interest rates, all of which um, have turned out to be lower than we thought um, in November. Energy prices have come down from their peaks um, and markets now expected them to be substantially lower over the medium term, although still above pre-invasion levels. Um, uh, interest rates have also come down a bit from what markets were expecting in terms of peak bank rate as well as gilt rates. They're both off by about half a percent compared to what we thought uh, half a percentage point compared to what we thought in, in November. The less fiscally keen, what the different what they are. 
Uh, so so bank, bank rate is what the Bank of England pays on deposits. Guilt rates is what the government pays on bonds. Um, and both of them matter for the public finances because there's a lot of both outstanding um, in, in private sector hands um, earning interest from one part of the public sector or the other. Uh, and then, and then uh, we also think that inflation, because energy prices are going to be lower, is going to be a bit lower over the course of this year. That helps with things like index inflation-linked debt as well as with benefit payments. So, um, and it also reduces the uh, cost of living squeeze on households. So all of those factors alleviate some of the financial squeeze that we're seeing on households over the course of last year and this year. And, and therefore, that means that we think there's less of a contraction in consumption, less of a contraction in the economy, and a shorter and shallower economic downturn than we thought over the first half of this year. And we think peak to trough, the economy only contracts by about half a percent of GDP compared to the 2% that we were forecasting uh, back in November. So in the near term, sort of less of a dip downwards um, and, and the economy starts to recover faster than we expected in November. Back in November, it was getting back to its pre-pandemic level, not until the end of 2024. This means that it now gets there by something more like the middle of 2024. Sort of looking beyond just the next year or two out to the medium term, I mean, as, as everyone's highlighted on the panel, there are still persistent structural weaknesses on the supply side of UK economy. Business investment has been essentially flat since 2016. It then fell during the pandemic, but it's only really recovered to its 2016 level. We've lost about 20% of business investment compared to what we were forecasting back in 2016. Um, we think we've lost around half a million people from the workforce, um, and we've seen sluggish productivity growth at about half the rate of growth we've seen since the financial crisis. Those problems condition where we think the economy is gonna get to in five years time. We've got a sort of long-term uh, trend rate of growth of around one and three quarter percent. And so the economy recovers toward that, but then settles at that in the near term. We haven't really fundamentally changed that view um, compared to where we were back in November, um, with some small exceptions, um, and, and some of which were the policies uh, undertaken by the Chancellor in his budget today. He spends about 25, uh, he, he uses about two thirds of the 25 billion pound windfall that the better economy gave him. Um, and he spends it on a number of things, a bit of support for energy costs in the near term, and that helps out again with the financial squeeze on households in the next few months. Um, he also provides uh, sort of generous but temporary tax incentives for business investment. That doesn't make a lasting difference to the capital stock of the economy, which, what, which is what really matters for productivity, um, because as, as both James and Harry pointed out, it just brings forward investment from, you know, from the future into the three tax years, into the three years where you get a tax advantage. But then investment's lower than we forecast back in November when the tax relief comes out. And so the overall capital stock, which is what matters, not the flow of investment, um, is pretty much unchanged by the time we get to the fifth year of our forecast. The thing that we do think is going to make a lasting difference to the potential output of the economy and sort of the supply side of the economy are the, the, the measures on the labour force. Uh, we think they add about 110,000 people to the workforce. And, and the childcare measure is by far the most important one. It's 60,000 um, of that. Um, and what that does in terms of the level of output by the end of the forecast is it adds about 02 uh, percent to the level of output by the end. Now, some people would say that's a small amount. I think it's actually, I'd say it's material and significant. Um, and and certainly from our side, um, it's the biggest supply side effect that we've we've uh, put in our forecast on the positive side as a result of, of measures like this. Um, and as I said, most of it comes comes from uh, comes from the childcare measures. Um, Despite giving some money away, uh, the Chancellor still fundamentally got the same economy uh, that he started with at the, uh, in five years' time, and that's when his debt target falls. 
Um, and as, as James and Harriet have highlighted, he's only got six and a half billion pounds worth of headroom against his objective of, get, of getting debt to start falling, which you should bear in mind, he's also put back the, de the deadline by two years mm. compared to his predecessor. Mm. Um, so even with two years of extra time and, 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 and a, a so, somewhat brighter economic outlook and a bit more potential output in the long run um, from higher employment, he is still struggling to meet that fiscal rule and we can get into like why is it so difficult in this country to get debt to start to fall, um, but it is it is a real challenge. And I think also, as Harriet has highlighted, there's a list of things which aren't in our forecast, which could easily wipe that headroom out tomorrow. Um, if you combine fuel duty, his aspirations um, on where he wants the tax regime for businesses to go, and also the aspirations announced earlier on this week about defence spending and getting it to two and a half percent of GDP. Um, when you combine those things, that bu that busts rules um, by by a country mile, and and there is this thing about kind of building more and more illusions into the fisc into the fiscal outlook, which is governments express aspirations, but because they're aspirations without without a defined uh, period in which they're introduced and realised, we can't put them on our forecast, but they kind of hang over the forecast um, and 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 act as a risk to the achievement of government's objectives. Very good. Thank you very much, Richard. Right. Okay. There's a lot to um, get through. So we're going. I mean, there's loads of great questions already um, coming in. As I said, it's hashtag Budget 2023, or you can put your hand up in the audience, and we'll bring a mic over in a second. So let's do the forecast, then the policy, and then let's come back to like the big picture of where is this leaving us? What do we actually think about what's going on? Where? What are the real lessons for the medium term? So let's start with a really unfair question for Richard to start <laughs> with, which is basically. Are all these forecasts already out of date because uh, we, had, we had a US bank wobble over the weekend and we've got a major Swiss bank mega wobble uh, <laughs> happening over the course of uh, today? Um, so, you know, isn't the world has got a lot worse already? Uh, so, so the world has been very volatile for, for, for months, if not years. And I think we, the Bank of England, anyone doing a macroeconomic forecast at the moment is forecasting in an incredibly volatile environment. I mean, the, the three issues that I've highlighted as being key drivers of not just forecasts, but actually real economic decisions out there in the real world, energy prices, interest rates, inflation. Energy prices went up sevenfold since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They came back down by half of that. Um, since we did a forecast back in March, that's just extraordinary volatility in the in, in the cost of doing business, the cost of heating your house. I don't think anybody sitting here 18 months ago, if you asked them how much you're going to spend on energy in 18 months time would have said, I'm going to be spending three times more um, than I am right now. So these things have a huge impact on people's economic decisions. Uh, changes in interest rates have huge impact on investment decisions. They also have a, a huge impact on the public finances. So. Uh, and we, we've also seen interest rates treble over the course of the past year and then come back down by 50 basis points just between November and now. And so because there is so much volatility in the economic environment, in the macroeconomic environment, in the geopolitical environment, any forecast you do can be nothing better than a snapshot of the world as you see it at that moment okay. in time. Um, that applies to all the things which have, been, have surprised us up until now. It also applies to the things which could surprise us in the coming days. Things happen. All right, what do you think about what's before we get into the we on while well, we, people are going to ask about it, so we may as well we may as well yeah. do Credit Suisse. Okay, yeah. What's going on? Are we are you very nervous? Are you medium nervous? Are you totally chilled? Uh, well, I, I mean, I endorse what uh, Richard was saying about forecasts. Obviously, they are just uh, a guess at any particular point in time based on the factors, and I think that it's welcome that the 
budget was accompanied by an Office for Budget Responsibility forecast. I think that is a key part of the financial architecture now, and it gives confidence to markets. Uh, and uh, I think also the changes that have happened to legislation in terms of bank resolution since the last banking crash have also proved their worth. So the events over the weekend um, with Silicon Valley Bank UK, uh, I think we landed mm -hmm. on the best possible outcome in the circumstances, uh, given the fact that there are these new powers that the bank has to keep the assets of Silicon Valley Bank UK in the UK, um, and it wasn't all sent back to uh, California. Um, and I think that shows that some of the, the measures that were put in place after the last banking uh, crash have helped. Um, similarly, uh, you know, the fact that the deposit insurance now covers the first 85,000 um, other than the situation, very different when we had Northern Rock and your first uh, uh, amounts weren't covered. So I think that's going to, you know, help us get through a period where clearly there is um, a uh, crisis of confidence going on in terms of, uh, uh, of a specific bank that you've you've named. Um, but I think our committee, we've got the governor coming in front of us uh, next week, is it, or the week after, to talk about specifically about Silicon Valley Bank, along with um, Sam Woods and Dave Ramsden, uh, because I think that uh, the you know the powers and the legislation that were put in place after the last crash put us in a much better position at the moment. And uh, I think that we will want to ask them about the impact of the Edinburgh reforms and uh, the reviews that have been happening, whether or not any of those changes uh, should take place. But also, I think we'll want to ask them about whether there are additional powers that would help them in difficult situations like this. Um, clearly, with a globally systemic, um, significant bank uh, like uh, Credit Suisse, you know, for the bank, one of the big issues they'll be wanting to look at will be uh, the interest rate uh, derivatives and long-dated credit derivatives, which are some of the exposures that are hardest to hedge away um, in the financial market. So I'm sure that's what they're looking at at the moment. Very good. Yeah. I think financial deregulation might be less popular today than it was two weeks ago. Is that fair, do you think? I think that uh, it is, uh, you, there really has been progress. I think we've seen a live stress test over the last weekend of, of, of what was put in place yeah. after the last um, uh, measure. And, you know, I'm on the record as saying, actually, when you look into the weeds of what's being proposed in the Edinburgh reforms, actually, it's not anything not very significant a few small tweaks uh, here and there yeah. um, certainly nowhere near as much as the US had done where the Silicon Valley Bank uh, US the 16th largest yeah. bank in the United States ended up being treated just as a sort of small bank. regional bank under the reforms that Trump put in we didn't do anything along those lines and I think the outcome from last weekend is probably the best outcome you could have had in the circumstances great then briefly Richard we're going to do now there's two questions for you the first one is you have been too nice to the Chancellor by scoring uh, policy changes having an impact on the economy, which basically collapses into on the labour market side. So I'll bring that one up for you. Uh, here, the, you're being too nice. Stop being so nice. The, why have you gone soft? And then for balance, we're a charity after all. The um, uh, Another one says, why are you being so mean to the Chancellor? Uh, 
this full, like capital, right. this full capital expensing is going to be like brilliant. More capital investment firms are going to be really excited. Why are you such a pessimist? Um, so why are you nasty and nice to the Chancellor? Uh, the truth is that we're neither. Um, in the, in the, we, we reflect. Well, that is a shocking answer. In the, we, Absolutely we, shocking. We reflect. So we always take account of the fact of the effect of policy measures, the temporary effect the policy measures have on demand. But we assume that in the long run, the Bank of England takes any excess demand out of the system so it doesn't have a lasting effect on the demand side. When we see policies that we think are going to have a, a significant and durable impact on the supply side of the economy, we also take account of those in our forecasts. Sometimes it's good news for chancellors, like when they manage to get more people into work, we do our best to estimate that and account for that in the labour force. Uh, but you know, what we also do is when governments announce policies that are bad for the supply side, we also take those out of our supply side forecast. One example is the rising corporation tax we think is going to reduce potential output by about 0.2% um, in the long run. So there is, there is also bad news in our forecast from measures that governments introduce that have an effect um, on investment decisions uh, uh, that, if, that can have long-term implications. And the single largest supply side effect we have in our forecast from policy decisions is from Brexit which we think in the long run reduces potential output by 4%. So um, you know, we do have a dynamic approach to thinking about the supply side of the economy. Okay. Sometimes it goes in, in, in government's favor um, when they're when introducing policies which actually make a difference to the labor supply, the capital stock, or the productivity of the economy. Sometimes it goes against them um, when they make decisions which are bad for the labor supply, bad for investment, or bad for productivity. So basically, you're just really good at getting it right. Uh, we're not good at getting it right, but I think we try and be fair but, um, in, 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 in making estimates. Let's uh, have a question from the audience here. Thank you. It's Chris Giles from the Financial Times. I've got to, I have got to abuse it by asking two. They're, oh, they're quite good ones. That's inflation for you. There is inflation. <laughs> um, but on, on the childcare and labour supply reforms, you were, you were critical of the pension reforms, saying they cost £80,000 a job. My calculation is that the childcare reforms cost £86,000 a job. Um, does that mean they are as worthless as the pension reforms? That's for the Resolution Foundation. Uh, and for the whole panel, um, taking into account Harriet's comments about uh, fiscal um, uh, illusions that, that exist, we also have a fiscal position that's, that is absolutely better than it was in November with debt much lower at the end of the forecast and borrowing than in November. And yet the headroom has gone down and we have these illusions we know there. Is the fiscal framework broken? Very good. Well, one, I take the first one and then you two can tell us whether, and James can tell us whether the fiscal... So on the first one, I think this is a really good question, which is when we're thinking about um, these quite expensive measures that are aiming to boost employment, then you need to assess them by what do they do to employment, which the OBR has done. And then we need to think about insofar as they do other things with deadweight costs, are they desirable? And how, does that, how do you put those two things together to come to a judgment about them? You don't want to just look at the costs. So let's go through those in turn, because Chris has set that out for us quite clearly. Let's, let's, I can't remember the exact maths, but I think it's roughly right. They look the same. They're basically pretty similar on the cost per job. Turns out it's really expensive to keep people in the labour market, right? So. Then we look at, well, what's the rest of them? What's the money doing? In the case of childcare, we are seeing some people entering the market, labour market, mothers of one and two-year-olds being the most likely people to have an elastic labour supply on the back of this um, change. Uh, so that gets us higher employment. For the rest of the money that doesn't do that, 
it does do other desirable things, is our view. So it does two other desirable things. It increases the uh, amount some pe other people will work. And we provide a good case study in the report, if you look, um, about how the move to this new childcare system for a single parent on national living wage, they have no financial incentive currently to increase their hours from 25 to 35 hours. But with this new system, they now have quite a significant financial incentive to do so. So some people will increase their hours. They, um, uh, there's a third reason, which is probably the biggest one, which is, okay, it's not changing dynamically anything, but it is having a big change to the level of life cycle redistribution, basically making parents of one and two-year-olds quite a lot better off. And although those may well be in general in the middle of the income distribution from a life cycle redistribution perspective, we think that is a sensible thing to be doing, given that that is when children are at their most expensive. So uh, I agree with you on the numbers, uh, but you've got to make a judgment on the policy in the round. And we think it's a more justifiable policy on those grounds. Whereas in contrast, when we come to the changes on pension tax relief, uh, it, I mean, we're even slightly pessimistic that we'll even get the 15,000 out of the uh, increase in employment. But Reasonable people will disagree on that, and it's incredibly uncertain, and all of these round to zero. The, um, once we're talking about 10,000 people, I mean, that's like you know, a tiny error in the labour force statistics uh, on any given month. The, um, but we can be pretty clear where a load of the deadweight spend is going, which is if we look at who paid the lifetime allowance charge for breaching it last year, we're talking about a very small number of people, less than 10,000 people, who on average would have saved... £44,000 each if they hadn't had to pay that charge. We don't think that would be the... Now, that isn't the exact way of thinking about who would benefit in future because some people will now save more and all the rest. But is that a policy that is well-targeted, a change within our benefits, our pension system, when we know we've got loads of low earners who haven't got any real pension and we know we've got some very rich people with very high defined benefit pension schemes and we've just basically thrown a load of money at those people. Mm -hmm. So that is why we come to different views, even though on, they show similar numbers in terms of the impact on, uh, on employment. You're, you're, get, you're getting the highlights of a conversation that took place about 1am last <laughs> night about how to get growth. Um, and what, what the best way to do that was. Come look at we the at our best. Foundation. Yeah, live the dream. Right, Harriet, <laughs> what do you think on the second? Fiscal framework's completely bust. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit hard on poor Richard because, you know, he's going to be in front of our committee next week. And, uh, you know, I <laughs> think uh, we're going to go through really all start. the different uh, elements <laughs> in his assumptions. But um, I would highlight the fact that I personally was very surprised that the pension uh, cap uh, was done to apply to everyone because I was expecting measures to be in the budget to apply to those in NHS pension schemes. And clearly one of the things that the Chancellor received in terms of advice was that that would be incredibly complex and difficult to do. I mean, that's certainly what yeah. I was told when I sort of said, I think that's what's gonna happen. So uh, they've obviously gone for the, the simpler approach of just doing it for everyone, but at the same time, um, moving to, you know, capping the annual amount that you can put in, um, you know, versus the days when I used to work in the city under Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, I think it was over 200,000 you yep. could put in annually. So um, they've gone for that. If uh, if there were, and again, this is so unfair to Richard, but, um, uh, you know, if there's a number that I find particularly difficult to get my head round on his forecasts, it would be 
the number of mums going back into work on the back of these childcare reforms because I actually think, and I always translate numbers, so if, you know, Richard says to me, you know, 100,000 uh, is what he's assuming. I think that's only 100 mums in my constituency as a broad brush, you know, I sort of divide everything by 1,000 to get a, a, an idea of the, uh, on the ground. I actually think it's going to be much, much more than that. I think it's going to be really, really transformational. I think there will be huge demand for this free offer on uh, childcare from nine months and you know it's going to be gradually phased in as a result to address the supply side but if there's something that's going to completely surprise uh, um, on the upside I think versus Richard's forecast I think that would be the one that I would pick out. Do you, which constituent do you think will be more angry the one that has kid has just turned three <laughs> or the one whose kid is uh, let me get this right going to be just like one day behind they're currently mm, what are they currently they're currently nine months and basically the phasing in of the new policy means that they're going to miss out at every minute just before the round who's going to be more angry yeah it's going to be um a, a disappointment to people <laughs> who think they've suddenly overnight had a completely universal free offer of childcare from nine months who will discover actually that can't Not be done so overnight by waving a magic wand it does have to be phase, phased in and funnily enough children don't stop getting older during the process Ridic yeah that's ridiculous you can't press pause it turns <laughs> out right there as much as you would like to try it do you want a physical framework is it completely bust so uh, it, it's not for me to comment on the rules that governments choose for themselves we just mark their, their homework um but I, I think it is the case that I think a weakness in the fiscal framework is that it is becoming increasingly gamed and the Treasury Committee was very right to point out that you know there is this track record of pretending you're going to index and then freezing fuel duty we haven't actually put up fuel duties since 2011 um but every chancellor claims it's going up by RPI uh, from every year after this year and it, and it never does and so uh, we've, we've gone so far this time given that pattern of behavior to actually when we report <laughs> performance against fiscal rules, you have a memo line saying, here's what it would look like if fuel duty was frozen for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And that reduces that headroom number from six and a half down to 2.8 uh, billion. And then you just need another bit of bad news after that and your, your headroom mm -hmm. is, is gone. And, and I do think that um, there is kind of increasing there are the governments are finding new ways of gaming these rules the, the new game is to announce an aspiration but then say i'm only i'll only get there when my resources allow well, mm. well your resources don't allow so why are you announcing mm. this thing mm. we've got two and a half percent to get to defense uh we've got an aspiration to make the the tax incentives permanent but um you know but we score the policy and so that's the policy that's that's in our forecast i do think that we need to work with the treasury committee on this issue to find some way of being you know transparent more transparent about these sorts of issues because because mm. you know i think we have a joint interest um in being both transparent and holding the government to account for what its promises are very good right we're going to do a quick poll on the forecast and Rick james is going to explain to you what this means the um, so james go it's down here you can see it. all right okay and um, so so um, this is just comparing what uh, the forecasts are for the bank of england which which do you prefer so the bank of england is very pessimistic it's saying the uk is in recession barely grows over the coming years gets to about half a percent in 2025 so it's a very bleak world out there and then the obr uh sunny uplands no recession growth picking up in the coming years but we have uh, growth heading to one and three quarter percent. That's the sort of long run sustainable growth level in the OBR forecast. That's about a percentage point lower than the prior to the financial crisis. So much less better than the bank, but, but still weak in, in that historical context. Or maybe you just think all forecasts are absolutely pointless and aren't worth the paper they're written on. Not my view. 
there. Right, now, while people vote on that, and don't do it too much lobbying for your outcome, you can answer Shushul's question, which is why specific... Hopefully we can bring it up on the screen, but I'll read it out. Please, Mike Richard, Shushul's always very polite, tell us more about the OBR's assumption about medium-term trend growth. Let's just focus on that. Your 1.75% growth rate in the medium term. Let's ignore all the mm. demand changes in the short term. Why is this economy so slow growing in the medium term? Why is your assumption higher than the banks? And remind people what the equivalent of the 1.75 is for the bank, because I can't remember. Uh, so they're, they're, they're sort of between one and one and a half. So they've got something uh, lower than, than we have. Um, it's, it's a number of things. And, and it partly comes back to this point about at what point are you taking a snapshot of the economy and then projecting that five years forward. Um, one of the things which drives our potential output forecast is the gas price and where it settles in five years' time. We have a very gas-hungry economy in the UK. We're one of the biggest gas consumers um, in Europe. And so where the gas price ends up has, a, has an impact on what the level of productivity is um, in, in the medium term. That came down from uh, where the bank was in February, um, and that makes a bit of a difference. So the kind of average gas price we have is about 150. I think the average gas price they have is about 190. So that improves the productivity in our forecast compared to the bank because a big input into uh, the UK economy is gas. Uh, interest rates also came down a little. That reduces the cost of capital a bit for businesses. That means you get a bit more investment um, because their cost of finance is a bit lower. And then finally, an area where we differ is on labor participation um, in five years' time, where uh, the bank assumed that labor participation keeps falling over the next three years uh, from its current rate. We think it actually starts to make a recovery. Um, and so the bank have got it at 6.5%. We're at, well, sorry, at 62.5%. Yeah, we're really um, stuffed at yeah, 6%. Yeah. Uh, 62.5%, <laughs> we've got it at 63%. And part of that is actually the effect of the measures that you saw in the spring budget, which is getting uh, getting young parent, uh, parents of young children back into work and some others as well. Mm. Richard is being very polite. The Bank of England have got a totally batshit forecast for employment in the labour <laughs> market because they assume that participation is like absolutely cratering and keeps cratering for year on year. And if that actually happened, there'd be like panic on the streets because there'll be people like lying there, not working. They're, it's like totally implausibly pessimistic. But just to bias your votes before we hear your votes, so let's see what you all thought <laughs> there on the, uh, do you want the batshit forecast or the sensible forecast? Let's have a look there. I should say the OBR to be nasty to the OBR as well are more optimistic than the consensus forecast as well. They, um, so they're, they're more optimistic than Bank of England. There you go, Richard. Uh, you won. There you go. You have I, think, I think people are just yeah. being nice to you. Yeah. I think people are being nice, but it's important to be nice in life. And the really important thing is that nihilism lost. And that is important. <laughs> people because we economists need to be kept in business year after year after year. Right, can we just take some questions from the audience? So let's take quickly Faisal at the back and then we'll go across to the gentleman over here. The microphone is running across now, i.e. the person carrying the microphone. We haven't got that much money uh, for flying microphones yet. Go. Uh, thanks guys, Faisal Azam, BBC News. Um, uh, just, I'm quite intrigued by the notion that the, the, the pr a bit processology here, that the process between the OBR and the Treasury was very, very iterative. And indeed, that some of the policy may have been led by what would have scored. You know, I'm quite interested in that as a process because it, it kind of does, does that not change the way that policy is made? It, you know, it, it, you know, some of your critics from the right would say well, you become a bit of a tyranny of what what you can predict is where policy goes. So, can you just address that. And then for James, can you just also just go through the the. Um, uh, the deciles and the uh, and, and the winners and losers. Just uh, 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 there's a very interesting chart that I don't think he talks about. 
Great, very good. And let's well, let's do those questions then, and then get the microphone to the gentleman over here, and we'll come to him. So, oh, so I, I, I don't think it's fair that um, you know uh, we are some kind of arbiter of the government's policy uh, uh, announcements in budgets. There are eighty-four different policies announced in this budget. I've talked about one, uh, you know, one, one package of those which has an impact on the supply side. Governments are announced policies all the time that don't make any difference to the supply side of the economy. So I, I don't think that in some sense our forecast drives the policy making process. Um, it, it, it was the case that we saw the Chancellor on, on four occasions in, in the context of this budget that we usually see the Chancellor sometimes once, sometimes twice in the course of, in the course of a budget. Uh, you know, he wanted to talk to us uh, on more occasions. That's very welcome from our side of things because I actually think iteration between what policies are being developed and what impact you think they might have on the economy is, is a useful and sensible thing in the policy making process. And I think one of the risks that both me and my predecessor always were concerned about is if you separate the forecast from the policy making process, you'll get a disconnect between the two and a misunderstanding about what might be the, the economic impact of this policy I'm going to introduce. So these discussions were in essence about understanding what, what could be the economic impact of different policies the government might introduce, but the idea that we're some we have some kind of we're some kind of arbiter of the government's policy choices or have a veto on them is just nonsense. Go try a slightly more nuanced version of Faisal's question because I think this is a really good question, which is that makes sense as an answer in principle, but where a chancellor has a position of running very low headrooms against fiscal rules, this danger mm. becomes much more mm. material because he hasn't got much space to make a judgment about disagreeing with you on the fiscal impact. Mm. Because if he, he thinks it's a really good right thing to do, he thinks it will improve the public finances the long term. But you say, I'm sorry, there's not evidence for that, quite reasonably. He's like, well, I, I haven't got any room against my fiscal rules. If you give himself a good amount of headroom against his fiscal rules, he can disagree with you and then find out if he's right or not. Uh, but that's a problem with reality. It's not a problem with our forecast. If you want to get debt to fall, it's either going to, you know, you, it, either, it either is or isn't going to happen in five years' time. Um, I, I don't think our forecasts make much of a difference. No, but he can't be. He doesn't want. He doesn't want you to say he's going to breach, breach his fiscal rules. So if you tell him he's not going to be able to score the upsides to a thing, he's not going to be able to do it. Uh, if he's got low headroom, which is his choice. Oh, we score up. We score supply side effects to policies where there's evidence that we that they'll have an impact on the supply side. Um, you know, chancellors choose the amount of headroom they want. They choose their fiscal targets and they choose how much headroom they want against those fiscal targets. If he wanted a different set of targets, he could have announced a different set of targets. If he wanted more headroom, he could have made other fiscal choices which gave him more headroom. Yeah. He didn't do either of those things. Yeah. I think that is the key thing. If you want to, if you want to, if you wanted permanently expensing for for um, business, upfront business investment, which we should have done if you were going to do it at all, then you could have just raised other taxes in the medium term to let you do that and you'd have had a big, bigger boost to investment. So, anyway, Harriet, what do you think? Well, um, you know, having been on the other side of things, I think the, uh, the scorecard is, is something that the Treasury will mm -hmm. be thinking a lot about. But one of the things that sort of stood out to me in terms of policy versus scorecard was one where it was scored as not very much money um, in the book, but uh, I think from a policy point of view could be incredibly impactful, which is people coming, uh, 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 going back to work uh, on universal credit, having their childcare paid mm -hmm. upfront for them rather than having to wait an entire month after they've returned to work to get it reimbursed in universal credit. And I think you scored that yep. really probably less than, it was really quite a small amount, wasn't it? Was, it? it was 10,000. But it could be uh, incredibly impactful, I think, in terms of uh, behavioural signals and uh, reducing that barrier to returning to work for mums. Right, yeah. James. So, so David Willits asked me casually this morning whether the budget was good for people on low incomes. And I about 
10 minutes later, I stopped talking. And um, I think he was just being polite. So I'll try and give you the, the short, short version. Yeah, please don't do that. We've only got 15 minutes. So, so, the, um, so the chart already showed you basically that these big announcements on the, on the participation side, this kind of middle to top heaviness of them. So the key thing here is the interaction of the childcare with the, and you know, given patterns of who works and that kind of thing. The, the big giveaway on the on the childcare side for the 33 hours from nine months plus that's really you know helping um, families in the middle and, and towards the top of the distribution and particularly um, uh, the, the pension tax changes are very top heavy obviously now um, if I show you a couple of other things. Oh, actually, can we, oh, oh, where is it? I, want, oh. I think we should make, while we wait for to try and fix this can, disaster, can, please explain can you give why me the boss... 25 tariffs, please. Oh, like, can I, make... well, just, I think it's important to understand why you're not seeing gains amongst poorer households from the free hours. And the reason is because for most of them, 40% of them are, of two-year-olds are already getting 15 free hours, so they don't benefit as much because they're already getting it. And if they are working, and they're poor and they're on universal credit, they're already getting 85% of their childcare costs covered by the universal credit support. So they only benefit by 15% for the increased hours, even if they are working. So because of existing support that exists for poorer households, they don't benefit as much from the move to the 30 hours, which more dominates for the middle and the top. And can I just sort of point out that this is all in the context of what has been the policy for Chancellor after Chancellor, which is to try and yeah. raise the take home incomes of those in the lowest deciles by increasing the national living wage by reducing national insurance and uh, and uh, an income tax for those households and now with this incredible offer on childcare i think um, the the public policy has been to get those on the lowest wages up to earning is it two thirds of uh, of median yeah, so you know and that, that trying to actually reduce the number of people in those low-income cadres should not be underestimated in terms of what public policy has been trying to do. Well, let's, I think we're going to run out of time, James, so I'm going to give you another question because I want to get through everyone's questions and I'm going to come to the gentleman over there. So first of all, housing, not really in this. So James, on someone's, uh, James is asking James, because it's important to talk to your co-named humans, the, um, uh, where's the housing stuff in this budget? And specifically, we were m maybe expecting a help to buy extension? Yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously the backdrop here is interest rates have been rising, mortgages have been getting much more expensive, the house, housing market, um, everybody's worried that house prices are going to fall very sharply. It's not happening yet. Torsten has predicted this for as long as I've known him. So maybe this will be the moment. But um, yes, the, uh, obviously the, the kind of affordability issues here are incredibly extreme, particularly for um, young um, families trying to get and trying to uh, get on the housing ladder. Uh, we had we had expected there to be a potentially a help to buy ext extension here that ran out earlier in the year. So um, some help for that that was that was not announced. But so there's you know big questions about uh, what's going on, what the prospects are for the housing market. Potentially with lower rates, maybe that there will be some support. So we've seen interest rate falls. So uh, questions there, I think. Great. And we should mention the LHA, the amount of help you can get. And universal credit for your rents is still frozen at 2019 levels, even though rents have risen significantly um, since. One for you, Richard, from Chris, basically saying, look, we're delayed. Last week we announced a load of delays to capital spending projects, HS2, uh, the A27, 
I think. Down on the south coast has been delayed again. Your favourite. Arundel. I think it's Arundel. Anyone from Arundel? No, obviously not, because it's a train strike. The, um, uh, so is that because we're cutting capital spending? Uh, so uh, we do, you know, I think this comes back to this question around there are good things and there are bad things that governments do to the, to the supply side of the economy. Um, is this good or bad? Uh, so reducing, in the long run, reducing capital spending on infrastructure is bad for productivity because a, a, stock, a functioning stock of infrastructure is a thing which facilitates economic activity. And uh, one thing which we have done uh, repeatedly is adjust our long-run productivity forecast for, uh, for what the government <laughs> says its investment plans are. And one thing which we, you know, which we did when they said they were going to invest more was we revised up productivity. One thing which they did when they when they then slashed those back was we revised down our view of productivity because it just means there's less there less being spent on the kind of networks that facilitate economic activity. And one thing that is notable and didn't get a lot of attention in the discussion around around this budget is actually public investment is falling as a share of GDP over the next five years because it's it's frozen after the spending view period in cash terms and so falling as a share of the economy and it falls. Um, from what was a, a sort of recent historic high of 3% of GDP back down to 2% of GDP by the time we get to the end of the, the forecast period. And we do assume that has an effect on the capital stock and we do assume that has an effect on productivity in a negative one. To plug James, he has another paper coming out shortly on exactly that problem. Let's take a question at the back. Thank you. I have a question primarily built of a daggies with Lombardia. My question is for Richard, but maybe I can get a range of views from the panel on the impact of Brexit on immigration into the UK and in turn onto the labour market shortages that we're facing today. How how significant do you think that is? And are there perhaps any easy wins there, like aspects of the immigration system that, if reformed, could yield uh, significant benefits to employment? So I guess in general, we've been surprised by how much migration there has been post-Brexit in that our initial forecast for what migration was going to be after we left the EU and the new post-Brexit migration regime came in was 120,000 migrants in steady state. Um, uh, what we've, and, and that's down from the kind of two to 300,000 <laughs> that we used to see um, prior to the referendum. Um, migration last year was 500,000. Um, which was a which was a which was a sort of near historic high for net migration in the recent past into the UK. Now there are some exceptional factors there. Um, you had people refugees coming in from Ukraine. You had people uh, people coming from Hong Kong. Uh, but it's still the case um, when, when we asked the ONS to do a new set of projections for us. Um, their number for steady state migration under the new regime is, is two hundred and forty five thousand. Um, and so that's a, that's a big increase compared to what we thought was going to be the, the migration impact of Brexit. What we don't know at the moment is. Uh, what that's going to do to the labour force, because obviously the big question for the economy is how many of these people then then work. Um, and uh, you know, what we what we know in terms of visas is that they've they've issued lots of visas for students, they've issued lots of visas for dependents, and they've also issued some work visas. Um, whether the students stay and work or go back home after they finish their education, whether the, whether the dependents are coming in also into also into labour force um, is a question you would expect reasonably that the people on work visas are going to come here and join the workforce as a kind of neutral assumption until we get a better understanding of what you know what these this new group of migrants who aren't from the EU but mostly from outside the EU are going to do economically is to assume they have roughly the same participation rate as the resident population um, and then we'll see actually whether they have a higher or lower um, propensity to work um, and sort of rather than try and build up 
bottom up sector by sector and understanding of what you know how many migrants you think you might bring in to pick fruit versus you know build infrastructure versus do something else we basically just look at the broad flows and say this system of, as a whole seems to be allowing in this number of people and 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 so far based on what we've seen is um every time we've done a, a migration forecast we've revised it up Great. Right. Let's take a question from Andy. And, and do you want to take this one, Harriet, which is basically one of the big announcements from the Chancellor yesterday is a plan to scrap the work capability assessment in a few years' time. Um, uh, Andy says they discussed the PIP assessment, the personal independence payment assessment in the white paper, which was also published yesterday afternoon. You should all read it. Uh, but it's not totally clear how it's going to work. And there's obvious anxiety. What do you think? I think this is one where we haven't yet seen uh, all the detail, but the general uh, approach is one where uh, the system has been set up to define what people can't do. And I think what the Chancellor wants to see is a system, and, and Mel Stride, my predecessor as chair of the committee who's done this Stride review, is a system that says, well, what can you do and how can we help you do that, particularly in an environment where uh, there are more jobs that you can do from home and, um, you know, there's more flexibility in the workplace than there used to be. Very good. The reason this is important is because, so there's currently these two assessments for people with disabilities or in health. The work capability assessment is giving you higher income support if you're too ill to work and your PIP assessment is deciding whether you qualify for cost benefits that help you deal with the cost of being disabled. Right, and the different people pass one test or the other. The, um, and so we're moving to a system with just one test, just the PIP assessment that we're going to use to evaluate the, both things we're trying to do in simple terms. I'm trying to keep this simple. And so the challenge is there's a group of people who do qualify because they're too ill to work for the current work health capability assessment support, but won't qualify if we just use a PIP assessment, which is what we're heading towards. There's about 600,000 of them. There's also people the other way who will benefit because they do qualify for PIP but don't qualify for um, the income support. So there'll be winners um, from this approach, but there's 600,000 potential losers. This is all in the very long term. It's really important for anyone watching that's actually affected by this change. None of this is being done to people who are currently in the benefit system and the change isn't even planned to be legislated for until the next parliament. Probably we're talking about the back end of this decade. Probably the rollout would be going on into the 2030s. So people shouldn't be panicking now. The government obviously knows there's an issue because if you read the white paper, they say they go to the groups that you would most worry about from a political perspective. So people with cancer, being treated would would qualify would often pass the work work capability assessment and get extra support but don't qualify for PIP and um, ill and pregnant mothers I think is also on their list of people they're looking to exempt so they know there's challenges we're going to work this through and basically we're going to find out what the policy is over the coming mm. uh, coming years it's hard right let's go to the big picture because we've got five minutes left about and then we'll, well let's take two questions here quickly and then we'll go to the big picture we grab a microphone who's got the microphone. Yeah, right. We'll take the two on the aisle. Thank you. Uh, Philip Inman from The Guardian. It was very simple, which is uh, you've assessed some of these measures for how they get people into work. Have you assessed the biggest tax raising measure, which is the freeze on income tax, and whether that's a disincentive for people to work extra hours, um, take promotions, etc.? Okay, very good. And let's take a question back. Uh, Phil Aldrich at Bloomberg. Just wondered if what's going on in the health and disability benefits area, where compared with March last year, the cost has gone up by 12 billion quid. So you could afford the whole full expensing regime if, if this an influx of people into health and benef disability benefits hadn't happened. Okay, there's a kind of few Richard too. Uh, uh, so on, on the impact of of uh, it is the case that 
the fact that tax thresholds are frozen is one of the big things that is actually driving the tax burden up um, over the, you know, it, it's uh, what's already driven it up and continues to drive it up over the next five over the next five years. You're bringing more than three million people into the tax system by virtue of having thresholds frozen. You're creating more than two million basic and higher rate taxpayers that increases their marginal tax rates. Uh, it's also important to remember that the VAT threshold is, is frozen. And one of the one of the things which we look at in the in the in the book is what's the impact of freezing the VAT threshold at eighty five thousand. And what 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 you what you see is uh, you get a bunch of businesses bumping up, basically bunch up against that threshold, and it becomes potentially a constraint on their desire to grow because they don't want to have to register for VAT with all the administration that that carries for a small business. And so, by freezing these thresholds, are you basically creating this kind of large cohort of, of micro businesses who don't, you know, who don't want to register for VAT because um, you keep the threshold so low? So, um, as Harry was saying, these thresholds really matter for economic behavior. They can create really big cliff edges in the system. And the more inflation you have, the more the more the, the more people those thresholds effect um so they 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 really do they really do matter uh, on the benefit side we we have we've been revising up from forecast to forecast uh spending on health and disability related benefits i think from a sustainability perspective it is a real worry um because and, and in particular uh these are benefits that you can uh, that you know up you know up until now you can only claim if you're out of work which means uh, you're you're not you're not supporting these people back into the labor force you're forcing them out of the labor force in order to get on them well you can claim pip you can claim PIP, but mm. be clear, you can not. Claim you can one claim of these benefits, the extra amount, is likely to be out of work, but you can have yeah. personal independence payments yeah. in work, and lots of people do, we should say that. Yeah, in fact, yeah. The, um, right, let's, um, uh, let's, right, James, actually, I think we should touch on this tax question, because you didn't get a chance to show us the chart on. So there's a lot of tax raising going on. We told you the headline of that, which is the 4.7% increase in the tax to GDP ratio. But the, without showing a chart, because we haven't got time, but who is paying these taxes across the income distribution? Well, well we've, just very quickly, uh, mainly because of this issue in terms of personal tax threshold freezes, we have, uh, in terms of the permanent, not, not focusing on the marginal, what got announced yesterday, in terms of the permanent impact from tax and benefits, what you've got is a sort of middle to top heavy hit in terms of um, uh, incomes basically largely coming from the, these personal tax freezes offset a little bit on the on the benefit side at the uh, the lower end of the income distribution. The policy packet the policy package for the part one as a whole looks pretty golden brown basically. You're basically taxing the middle and the top and you're giving to poor households through the the reduction in the universal credit taper. It's pretty much like this if you look across the income distribution. Now, I'm not saying that's how you want to judge the whole 13 years or any particular individual budget, but if you look at what's been done in this parliament since 2019, it's pretty progressive. Um, and there's lots of lo more losers than winners because the country's got uh, poorer over those um, years. Right, let's do the big picture then from each of you, which is just to give some reflections on what does this forecast and this like situation tell us about Britain, about what the effect of a big energy crisis is on a country and about the prospect for future politics and tax cuts or not in uh, the coming uh, years. Richard and James then have um, I think that this budget and this forecast felt like a bit of a breather um, from a, a bunch of budgets and other fiscal events which were basically responding to crises in the short term, either the pandemic um, or the energy crisis or you know all the tumult in financial markets in the autumn. And I think th this, this felt a lot more like a normal budget focused on a set of medium-term structural challenges. Obviously, there's a, there a bit more support for the energy crisis in the near term. But I think what it really does underscore is it's been a long time since we had a budget like this. 
um, we, we have been, been we've been in fiscal firefighting mode since um, early 2020, and there's not been a lot of focus on these long-run drivers of the more chronic problems that the UK economy has. Um, I do have a lot of sympathies for chancellors who don't get a lot of time to catch their breath and focus on the medium term before the next crisis hits, um, and they have to respond to that. Um, and I, I, I really hope that we can look forward to another quiet budget in November, but we'll obviously be keeping an eye on developments. Autumn now. statement, it's not a budget. Sorry, uh, an autumn Do statement. not want another budget. <laughs> Treasury, we are not having another budget in the autumn under any circumstances. James. Well, I, I guess what people might be thinking about in, in all this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of we're seeing this sort of ever-increasing tax take and this um, uh, increasing size of the state, which obviously people have focused on. What, what is going on with that? Well, sort of fundamentally, we've gone through this cost of living crisis. We're poorer as a country. The economy is smaller. You know, we've got this uh, something like a sort of £2,000 per person hit to the overall size of the economy relative to um, relative to where we the path we were on prior to the pandemic. So the economy is weaker and... Lots of people going around saying they want to uh, have a lower tax burden, but lots of people also coming up with lots of things to, to spend money on. So if you want to uh, have pension tax giveaways, you want to do uh, cut corporation tax, then the reality is you're going to need to do something on, on taxes elsewhere. So that, that's the kind of thing that I, th I think feels like we sort of painted ourselves into a corner here, but actually is a sort of economic reality. Have it? Well, obviously, the context is we've had uh, this political turmoil last year and we've had these two dreadful uh, economic shocks with the pandemic and uh, the energy crisis and feeding through into this very high rate of inflation, which is just, you know, the worst tax on the poorest people that you can possibly have. And so things have stabilised and the context now is... Uh, a focus on delivery this year in terms of getting inflation back down again, making sure the economy continues to grow and making sure that debt remains under control and we deal with the debt that we accumulated during those two crises while helping households in a number of, uh, of, uh, of ways with their, with their bills, particularly for uh, for childcare in this in this budget, and I think you know this is trying to continue with that steady state, put in place some strong foundations for for a growth recovery from here um, in uh, ahead of a, a year next year, when obviously um, it will be up to uh, the British people to decide um, what they want next. Um, as it is due to the whole democracy thing. The, um, right. Okay. Look, let's thank our panel for those big picture uh, thoughts and everything else they've told us this morning. The, um, and again, to the whole Resolution Foundation team upstairs or in bed, wherever they are, for the work they've done um, overnight. The, um, it may not be a pretty outlook or a particularly easy and soft outlook for the UK economy or particularly people's living standards, uh, but at least it was a calmer budget. And, you know, what else can you ask for in life, people? Have a good day. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.